Well, good morning again. It's good to see you. Let's pray together and then dive into God's Word. Father, how good it is to sing your praises, to be reminded of your cross, Lord Jesus, and the life that was purchased for us in it. We come now to your word. We pray that you would teach and instruct us that nothing in us would resist anything that you want us to know, to believe, or to do. We pray that you would have your way with us. Holy Spirit, be our teacher and instructor today. We don't need the words of a man. We need your word, Father. We need your spirit to be our teacher. Thank you that you promised that he would be. Now take your word, plant it in our lives, transform us through it. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. If you got your Bibles, go to Luke chapter 10. We're gonna be in verses one to 20. Let me give you kind of the lay of the land of where we're headed now over the next five weeks. We just wrapped up a series on belonging last week and we wanted to spend some time thinking uh, about this season uh, in the church calendar. We call it Lent and it's really a season of preparation for Easter or for the cross. And so we are headed towards Good Friday. We are headed towards Easter Resurrection Sunday where we will celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And in leading up to that, as I was praying and considering what we might do to prepare our hearts and get ourselves ready, uh, I thought a good uh, journey for us might be a journey through the book of Luke. So we are gonna look through or look at five snapshots in the book of Luke. Now there's something pivotal to know about the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, if you uh, are, aren't familiar with it. When you're reading through the book, it essentially divides into two halves. It's not really halves, it's kind of a third and two thirds. But at, at chapter nine, verse 51, there is a dividing point in the book of Luke. Everything up to that point is Jesus' ministry, things that he's doing, uh, and it's good stuff. And then at, at Luke 9.51, there's this moment where Jesus is among, uh, in a region called Samaria, which is just north of and outside of Jerusalem and Judea, which is kind of the, the Jewish homeland. And he is interacting with some of the Samaritans there. And at the end of that interaction, in Luke 9.51, it says that Jesus turned his face or set his face towards Jerusalem. And what Luke is doing there for us is telling us that everything now for the rest of the book is gonna take on a very different flavor than everything that has come before it. Because everything that is now going to happen in the book of Luke is going to be looked at through the lens of the cross of Jesus. When Luke says that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, what he's saying is Jesus determined and decided definitively and finally to go to the cross. And so now everything that he does is through the lens of my death is imminent and it is coming and everything I do is gonna be done in light of that reality. Does that make sense? Yeah, church, does that make sense? Good, fantastic. I wanna make sure we're there. So as that happens then, he is going to begin to interact with his disciples and with those who follow him and even those who are sort of weighing his message in the gospel of Luke in a very different way because he's doing it through the lens of I'm not gonna be here much longer and so I wanna impart some things to you. So what I wanted to do between now and Easter Sunday is I wanna take five snapshots of things that Jesus does with his disciples, with his followers, leading up to the cross in light of this Luke 9, 51 reality that he has determined now to, to turn his face and, and the pace is quickening now towards his death. And he realizes it, he knows it, and he understands there are some things he needs to impart to his followers so that they're prepared for the time when he will no longer be with them and for the work that he has called them to do. This is apropos for us, right? Because we live with Jesus' presence with us spiritually, but not physically, right? And so we live in this reality that Jesus is preparing the disciples for. They are living in a current reality of Jesus physically present with them and enjoying that and coming alongside him and learning from him. And he's saying, I'm gonna seize now these moments to prepare you for the moment that I won't be with you 
to prepare you for the time that you're going to need to carry out this mission that I've given you, this gospel work. You're going to need to carry it out. You're going to have to carry it out without me present here. I want to tell you some things that you need to know to be ready for that moment. So five snapshots over the next five weeks that will give us an idea of some things that Jesus wants us to learn. So let's look at Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 20, and I'll read them. You read along with me. Starting in verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. That is not an encouraging phrase. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter first, say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. The spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So this is a good episode, right? It's one some of you may be familiar with. There's some, there's some familiar phrasing in this uh, story, but the thing I want to draw out, if I could make an argument for one, in one sentence to encapsulate the message of the lesson of this that Jesus is wanting to teach his disciples, his followers, it's this. Jesus wants his followers to make more followers. Complex, Right? Wow. Jesus wants his followers to make more followers. And so he is setting them up to learn how to do that. Now, this is brilliant, right? Because Jesus knows he's not going to be around very long. And they've been watching him call people to himself and say, come, follow me. Come on, let me, let me heal you and then let me show you that I am life. And they're watching him do that. And they're coming alongside and they're learning as they observe. And now what is Jesus going to do? He's going to say, guess what? It's your turn. I'm going to send you out and you're going to go out and you're going to learn and you're going to mess up and you're going to stumble and you're going to fumble through this at times, but you are going to do it. And you're going to need to learn because it's not enough just to watch me do it. You need to now go do it yourselves and figure out what it looks like to try and do this. And then you come back and we'll debrief it. We'll talk through it. I'll give you some, uh, some pointers, some lessons, some learning points, but then you are going to go out and do it again. Now, here's one of the things I love about this story. 
is in Luke chapter nine, Jesus sends out the 12, kind of his immediate close in group of followers, disciples. He sends them out to do this. And then you would think, okay, so he's done that with the 12. But then in this, did you notice how many he sent out? He sent out 72 more because he's recognizing the mission is critical. I'm gonna send out even more. I'm not just gonna train the 12. And one of the reasons I love that is because when I read through the gospels, sometimes Jesus does something with the 12 and I think, well, they're kind of the special 12. I mean, I'm not sure how much that applies to me. That's really them. They're the special ones. They're the unique. But he calls these 72 as if to say to us, by the way, this isn't just the 12. This is everybody. Everybody who follows me, right? So here's 72 more. Everybody who follows me needs to learn to make more followers. Now, this is also what's really encouraging me about this, is that Jesus sends them out to learn how to do it, as if to say, I'm training you. You're not going to get it right the very first time. You're not gonna knock it out of the park. And if you're like me, when you think about telling other people about Jesus, about making more followers of Jesus, one of the things that might hinder you is you think, I've got to get all my sort of doctrine down pat. I've got to get everything just so. I've got to have all the right answers to all the tough questions that I know they're going to ask me, like why is there pain and suffering in the world if God is a good God? And if I don't have that answer nailed down where I can give the elevator pitch on that somehow, I feel like maybe I shouldn't open my mouth at all. Have you felt that? I think what's beautiful about this is Jesus saying like, you're not gonna learn until you go do. You're not gonna really learn how to do this until you just go and do it. Now you come back, I'll work with you on it. But it takes a lot of stress and pressure off of every conversation you have about Jesus with someone who doesn't know Jesus if you treat that conversation not as something you have to nail and get just right each time, but as you treat it as something that you're learning how to do it better each time you do it. Would you agree that that helps a little bit? Every time, Jesus is sending you. He is, this is not an optional activity for a follower of Jesus. It's not like the, you know, it's not the varsity version and you can be content being the JV. It is for everybody who's ever wanted to follow Jesus, who's ever said, I'm, I'm yours, you're mine. Every single one of us are called to make more followers. And because that's the case, friends, we've, we've got to learn to step into it. We've got to learn to step into this reality. It doesn't matter if I'm introverted or extroverted. It doesn't matter if I like a lot of friends or a few friends. It doesn't matter if I'm really smart or I'm not so smart. It doesn't matter if I'm, you know, none of that matters. What matters is how we learn to step into the call to make more followers of Jesus. And one of the things you can just bank on, friends, is that each time you step into it, he will teach you more about how to do it. And that's what he's doing here for the disciples. So let's look at five things. There's just a couple things I wanna point out. My hope this week, my prayer has been, Lord, just help me to make this extremely practical, right? So I want you to look through the story with me and I want you to, I want you to see a couple things that I think are really very practical for us in learning how to do this, okay? The first is this. I wanna begin at the end of the story, verses 17 through 20. And the first thing that we can observe is this, is that in order to make more followers of Jesus, we have to love God first and most. We have to love God first and most. Look at what happens in verse 17. I'll, I'll just read it again to you. So the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Okay, so he sent them out and he's told them, go out and drive out demons and heal the sick. And they've done that and they come back and they are pretty pumped, right? Because it worked. They went out and they said, you know, this demonic presence that's in a person's life, I'm gonna drive you out in the name of Jesus. And they actually left. And I'm thinking, this is, wow, this is amazing, Right? And so they do it and they come back rejoicing. And Jesus gives them what I would just call an attaboy, right? 
He says in verse 18, and he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Okay, now what he's talking about there, he's not, he's not talking about when Satan was an angel and rebelled against God and fell from heaven. He's actually saying, when you were driving out these demons and doing these mighty works in my name, I saw Satan's kingdom crumbling right before his own eyes. And he, he was falling like lightning falls out of heaven. That's the analogy he's using. So he's just using that analogy of lightning coming down out of heaven as a demonstration of how Satan, his kingdom was crumbling as they were going out and healing. And then he says this. So that's really just, that's like an attaboy, right? Saying, well done. You took me at my word. I told you to go do this. You went and did it. And Satan was fleeing before you because Satan flees at the name of Jesus. That's what he does. He cannot do otherwise. And so they, they went out, they did it. He gives them an attaboy. And then in verse 19, behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Okay, now don't go out and take your shoes off and walk on some scorpions today, right? Because he's not using that literally. He's using it metaphorically. He's using scorpions and serpents as a metaphor for demonic powers. And he's saying that they are subject to you in the name of Jesus. And I've given you authority over them, right? And he says, and nothing, into verse 19, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, right? Now that's some pretty big time stuff. And he says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So what's he saying there? He's saying, more than I want you to fall in love with the power that flows through you in my name and the authority that you have over even demonic forces of evil, more than that, I want you to delight that you know me. I want you to love me first and I want you to love me most. And I want you to never forget that the most effective means of ministry, of making more followers, is that you love me. Have you known someone who's so in love with Jesus they just can't shut up about it? Have you known someone that just seems to be bubbling over with joy at every turn in life? I've, I've got a couple of friends like this and they... Uh, inspire and encourage me. And every time you talk to them, there is this just very clear thing about them and it's that they are in love with God. Nothing, they treasure nothing more than him. And friends, if I could say anything, if you're gonna learn to make followers of Jesus, the first thing you need to know is you've got to cultivate love for God and it's got to be your first love and the thing you love most to the greatest degree. The most effective way to help other people love Jesus is to love him yourself. That's a no-duh statement. I know that, okay? But you have got to, you've got to love him with everything you've got because it's not really compelling to say to somebody, you need to follow Jesus when you don't love him that much yourself. Now, there's a couple observations I wanna make about that and what, what Jesus is saying here, okay? The first is this. It's easy to confuse serving God with loving God. You need to know that. Because over time, you'll start out in the Christian life and you'll start out and you want to serve God because you love him. And that's really good. It's wonderful, in fact. But over time, what often happens is you get in, the, you get in this mode of serving him and you begin to confuse serving him with actually loving him. And the thing, the distinction that Jesus is making here for us, at least one of the distinctions, is it's possible to serve him without loving him. It's possible to just make serving him a habit in your life a duty, something you carry out because you know it's right, and that's good that you do that, but he doesn't want just that. He wants your heart to be captured by him, and he wants you to love him first and most. Now, here's, the, here's one of the beautiful things, one of the safeguards for us. If this is the case with you, if you find that 
if you find that often you are <clears throat> mistaking serving God with loving God, over time, when your service is not born out of love, usually it becomes less effective. Now, there are other reasons why your service to God might become less effective over time, but one of the key reasons would be that you have ceased to love God first and most. And you will find over time that your service to him becomes less effective. Your words become less power-filled. You find that your uh, wisdom becomes less wise. You find that your service to him lacks the strength which he intends it to have. And that's not bad, actually, because what that's intended to do is to cause you to be reminded that perhaps you have left behind your first love and to turn around and to go back and to say, restore my passion for you, restore my love for you, to take seasons of solitude and silence and, and, and just to be with the Lord. It's an important thing. So pay attention when your ministry starts to have, when the work God has called you to, starts to seem to have less power, less effect, because one of the reasons that it possibly might be so is that you have left behind your first love. And he's saying, I want you to love me first and I want you to love me most, so much so that I'll make your work less effective so that you might be pointed back to this reality that you need to press back into being in love with me. The second observation I want to make here is this. It's easy to become intoxicated with gospel power. Now, when you serve Jesus, you are serving the most powerful being in all existence. And his power flows through you. Now, if you've experienced that, you know that it is like for these disciples, it's amazing. And you find yourself thinking, oh my goodness, even the demons are, like they're saying, even the demons are subject to us in your name. This thing is amazing that you've called us to do. I can't believe that you would pour out such power through me. And the thing, church, that you need to be careful of is that over time, it does become very easy to become intoxicated with that power and to love the outpouring of that power more than you love the one who pours the power out. That's dangerous and you need to be aware of it and just take note of it and be prepared for the temptation of that. Now, how can we guard against these things? Well, he gives us a remedy right here in the text. Did you notice what he said? He said to them, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you, right? Rejoice, that's the key word, rejoice that you have a relationship with me, that your names are written in heaven. In other words, rejoice means what? It doesn't mean just have a happy feeling about. Rejoicing is always a verbal expression of praise towards God. He says rejoice. He's not just saying be happy about it. He's saying rejoice, declare your joy out loud that you know me. So what is a remedy for helping us guard against our love for God waning? What's the remedy? It's worship. It's worship. It's filling our cars and our kitchens with worship of God everywhere we go. It's waking up and first thing in the morning, turning on the worship and saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sing a hymn to you to start my day, right? One of the things it means is coming here and being prepared to worship God passionately. Now look, and here's what I, you don't worship God passionately and with emotion. You don't worship God passionately and with emotion just because it comes over you, you choose to do it. You know that, right? You choose to do it. You don't wait for a feeling to come over you. You say, I will worship you with everything I've got. I will summon it up and I will declare that you are great. And friends, if we could, like we're a church that I will always have a high value for truth. But sometimes churches that love the Bible and love a high value for truth, have a high regard for it, sometimes we get a little stiff in our worship. And I don't understand why that is. I honestly, it confuses me because what can propel you to worship better than the truth about who God is? There's nothing better than that. 
we sometimes get a little worried about branching over into emotionalism, that somehow we're just drumming up false emotion. Friends, if you're declaring what is true about God, that should evoke more emotion in your worship than anything else could ever do. And it, should, it calls for an emotional response. I mean, for goodness sake, there are moments in the scriptures where Paul is just writing a letter to a group of believers and he gets so overwhelmed by who God is that he branches into, like veers off into this diatribe about how amazing God is and they are hymns of praise that he's just inserting into his letters because he's so overwhelmed with emotion about how great God is. If you want to guard, if you want to guard against the danger, right, of not loving God first and most, the way to guard against it is to make worship, passionate worship, a regular part of your life and to come here and to express that with the body. And I will say too, this is about making more followers of Jesus. Friends, if I could just say this, I'm not sure how, if we can't be bold in our worship with the family of God who agrees with us about who Jesus is, I'm not sure we're gonna be very bold in the world who disagrees with us about who Jesus is. Would you agree with that? I mean, it just seems to me like we're going out into a world where the expectation is kind of keep your mouth shut about Jesus and don't tell me what to believe or what to think. And Jesus is saying, yeah, I know that's your cultural day and age and that's the value that, that you have in your place where you live, but that's not my value. My value is that you tell people about me. And are you gonna let my value trump or their value? Which value is gonna reign in your life? Is it gonna be the cultural value of keeping your mouth shut or is it gonna be the cultural value of talking about me because you love me and because I've told you to tell others about me? We know the right answer to that, right? And I'm not sure that we're gonna be able to step into that with the kind of boldness and regularity and courage and wisdom if we don't come here and with boldness and great emotion express our, our worship to God. I think that's part of how he wants to prepare us to be great at telling other people about him. So if I could encourage you, if I could encourage you to think about how you organize your Sunday morning to be prepared to come here and offer God everything you got when we worship him, everything you got. The next observation from the text is this. We need to learn to pray for the harvest. Look at verses one and two. So we started at the end. Now let's work back to the beginning. Verse one and two. Actually, just look at verse two. Verse one, he sends out the 72, every place he's about to go. And then he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Okay, a couple things to notice here. Jesus is using agricultural metaphor to paint the picture of what's going on. Now, he says that there is a harvest. Whose harvest is it? Is it our harvest? No, it's his harvest. He says, I'm the Lord of the harvest. I have prepared so many people to be brought into my kingdom. I have done a work preparing them and calling them into my kingdom. There are so many of them that there are not enough people to go and tell them so that that harvest might be brought in. Pray to God to raise up more laborers for that harvest. There need to be more people to go out and tell others so that they can be brought in. So he delights to put the work in our hands, but ultimately he's saying, I've done it. I've prepared it. I have, I have provided the rain and the sun and everything that's needed for this crop to grow. It has grown. Now you go out and bring it in. And that's what he's saying to us. Now, in light of this reality that there are so many people, and by the way, this is not just something Jesus is saying, the harvest is plentiful in their day and age. The harvest is plentiful in our day and age. 
There are people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people group that God is calling to himself and redeeming and calling into his church family. There are people right here in central Pennsylvania that God is preparing and doing a work in their life to draw them in and call them home. And he's saying, go out and bring them home. Go out and show them the way to come home. I've done the work. You go out and just join me. Now, if that's the case, right? If that's the case, then what does he say we should do in light of that? He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send more laborers into the harvest. Now, that's going to do at least two things and probably many more. Number one, if you begin to pray for the harvest, if you begin to pray, God, send more laborers into the harvest, pretty quickly, you're going to realize that it's kind of ridiculous to pray, Lord, send more laborers into the harvest and not be willing to go yourself. Right? Have you had those kinds of conversations with the Lord? You're like, Lord, would you? And he's like, yeah, I put you there. You're the one. Right? So pretty quickly you begin to realize that that will happen as you begin to pray to the Lord of the harvest. The second thing that will happen as you begin to ask God to do this is you will begin to see what, a, what kind of a heart God possesses. And it's amazing, friends. I don't know if you've ever gotten involved in a Bible study that walks you through the missionary heart of God from beginning to end in the scriptures. But all the way from the very beginning to the very end, God is at work bringing in a harvest for himself. All the way from Genesis 12 to when he calls Abraham and he's gonna make a great nation of him, the nation of Israel. And he says, I'm gonna do this, but it's not just gonna be for you. It's gonna be so that you would be blessed in order to be a blessing. In other words, I'm blessing you so that the nations would come to know me. Or in Psalm 67, just fast forward a little bit in the Bible, to Psalm 67, where the psalmist says, let the nations be glad and rejoice because our God reigns. In other words, he's saying the best possible scenario for the entire world, for all the nations in the world has come to pass, and it is that our God reigns over all things and is inviting them into relationship with him. Or go all the way to Revelation. George read Revelation 1 for us. Go a few chapters later into Revelation verse 7 where the harvest is finally brought in. It's a vision of people from every tribe and every nation and every tongue. And guess what? Here's how we know that the harvest is still plentiful because in Revelation chapter 7, what does it say? A multitude that no one could number was before the throne around our God, worshiping him and declaring, our God is a missionary God. He sent his son who left heaven to enter earth so that we might know him. He is on the move everywhere, redeeming a people for himself. Let me give you something you can do to, to sort of grow in your understanding and learning of that. We have, if you've taken the class, the Perspectives on World Mission class, uh, it's a fantastic thing. We have not had it for the last couple of years here. We are reinstating it January 2018. So I just want to put it on your radar because there is no better uh, thing that I've ever encountered to help you get a vision of God's global plans and how he is just dead set on redeeming people from every people group for himself. Now, word of fair warning, like you do this, it will set you on fire, okay? You're gonna walk out of that class and you are going to be a changed person because you're gonna recognize like, oh, my vision has been way too small. God is up to something really big and he's called me to be a part of it. So Perspectives on World Mission, one of the greatest courses, January 2018, we're bringing that back and I think it's gonna be phenomenal. Third thing that we see here, and this is so simple, it really is so simple. You've got to put yourself in positions of uncomfortable need. 
Did you notice what he did? He said in verse 3 through 8 in this story, he says, I'm going to send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. That's not a comforting phrase, right? And then you might think the next reaction would be, okay, so like prepare yourself. Make sure you put on plenty of armor, right? Uh, Get plenty of provisions stored up and get ready. But it's not what he says next, is it? What he says next is, uh, so don't take any money. Don't take a knapsack. And don't stop. And it's too urgent. You got to get there. Don't stop and talk to anyone on the road. Just get moving. Get going. Don't wait. In other words, he's saying, he's saying, put yourself in a position of need so that you can watch me deliver. Make yourself intentionally dependent upon me. Now, we know later on in Luke, Jesus actually tells the disciples, I mean, now we're, we're like really close to the cross at this point. And he actually tells them, when you go out, Take money with you, take a pair of sandals. You know, he actually tells them to take provisions. So what he's not saying here is that provisions are a bad idea or having a good strategic plan is a bad idea when you go out to tell other people about Jesus. What he is saying, however, is that you need to know that you will always be dependent upon me in this mission and you need to make choices that make you uncomfortable as you go out to do it. Now, that's an easy thing to say and a hard thing to do, right? Easy to say, hard to do to say, let's put ourselves in positions where we are uncomfortable. I mean, this could look a thousand different ways, right? It could look like reordering your financial priorities so that you're giving more money away so that you're dependent upon the Lord and you know, being sacrificial when you're giving. It could look like the simplest one, the one that's been on my mind all week long, it probably looks like just opening your mouth in a conversation and actually professing the name of Jesus where you've been uncomfortable to do so. I mean, let's just give the most obvious application here, right? Not, let's not look for some really hard, convoluted application. Let's look for the simplest one. Simplest application to this text is it's, it can be uncomfortable and awkward to talk about Jesus in a group of people that don't want to hear about Jesus. And I think one of the things he's saying is, look, just get uncomfortable. Just say my name. Tell them who I am. Talk about me. The, the good thing is, I will say, church, the good thing is, the more you press into a relationship with the Lord, the more you talk about him in a way that is so natural and so second nature and so just who you are that it does seem to have a different kind of effect than the person who has some kind of formula for talking about Jesus. That almost never works, by the way. But if you have so cultivated love for God first and most, you become, you just, you, it, you talk about what you love. You do. Everybody does, Right? I talk about the Cowboys because I really like the Cowboys, right? I mean, seriously, if you get in a conversation with me, they're going to come up at some point probably, right? That's probably, it's a good reminder for me. It's like I probably need to talk about Jesus at least three times as much as I talk about the Cowboys. When you love something, you talk about it, and, and you do. You cultivate a way of talking about it naturally because you know it's so inside and out, and you just you want other people to love it too. Now, the fourth thing. The fourth thing is give people opportunity to see God's power and love. Give people opportunity to see God's power and love. Look at verse nine. It's just one verse, but it's so crucial in here. After he kind of tells them, look, you're gonna go out and you're gonna be dependent upon me. He then says, heal the sick in the towns where you go and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, he's giving them a two-part strategy for the way they go about their mission. He's saying, I want you to do works of power so that they see how, how true this message is. The works of power will authenticate the truth that you're speaking, but you can't do the works of power without speaking the truth. Don't separate them. 
Don't just do the works of power and then not declare that I am king. And then not say the kingdom of God has come near to you. Listen to how beautiful a message that is. That's what they're supposed to go say to people. The kingdom of God, the place where God rules and reigns, it, it's come near to you. And you can be a part of it. You can be in it. And God is not your adversary. He's for you, not against you. The kingdom of God has drawn near is a way of saying God loves you and has come near to you, has come close to you. Because Jesus has come down. And that's what they're saying. The kingdom of God is here through Jesus. And you can know God and have a relationship with him. And you can have that because the kingdom of God has come near not to harm you, but, to, but for your good. Now here's, friends, here's what I would encourage you in, right? We always make one of two errors. Churches in particular make one, always make one of two errors. We either think we've got to go out and do all the hands and feet of Jesus stuff, the works of power stuff, right? Like feed the hungry and clothe those who are without and you know, provide for the needy. And those are you know, necessary, necessary things. But we think sometimes we stop as if that's enough, as if it's okay to do that and not tell people about Jesus. And friends, that's not okay. It's not okay. You can, that's, that is feeding a man now and starving him for eternity and it does no good. Not in any real sense. But the other side that we can make error is just like, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm not gonna worry about any of these works of power. I'm not gonna worry about any works of healing or doing any of these things. I'm just gonna worry about telling people about Jesus. And that's what he says. That's like saying to your brother, just go be warm and well-fed, go get them. And caring nothing for the daily needs of that person's life. He's like, that makes the gospel ring hollow. You have to do both. You have to do both. Now he's talking here about miraculous kinds of power. He's saying to them, go out and drive out demons. Heal the sick. Do miraculous works. Now, there are many ways to display the power of God, right? I'm thinking of ways that we display the power. By, by putting away sin in our own life, that's a way that you display the power of God. Or like our brothers and sisters at Cure. Y'all know Cure International, right? Great hospital building organization that we have a history with and love, right? And they build hospitals. Why do they do that? They build hospitals around the world so that they can do surgeries on kiddos bring physical healing into their life and then say to them, the God who loves you wants to heal your soul, not just your body. Let us tell you about him. But they've done the work of power so that they might have opportunity to speak about Jesus. That's powerful. That's profound. But I have in mind here something more supernatural than just those kinds of things. Because that, that's good. That's, those are works of power that are done in sort of the day-to-day -day work that we do. But there is certainly a type of work of power that God, I think, wants to do through us. One of the things that you see that's a pattern in the New Testament is that often, often, the most miraculous works are done in order to bring people into faith. And then once the church is formed, it's not that we don't see miraculous works being done on, on the part of believers, because we do, but it seems like they are less frequent than those that are done for those who need to see a demonstration of power so that they might come to faith. Our brothers and sisters at Serve India Ministries, who are friends of ours, testify to this all the time. They're planting churches in villages that are predominantly Hindu. And one of the things they have told us, and I, it just fits the biblical pattern, one of the things they've told us is that when they go into a village, there's almost always an immediate rejection of the gospel, and they just keep going and keep going, and these pastors keep going, and they're just sowing seed. And often they're chased out of the village, they're threatened, and at some point, God will do a miraculous work of power to demonstrate his authority in that village. And when that happens, usually a few people will see it and they will come. And they will say, I need to know the God who can do that work of power. 
But they've also told us that once the church is formed in the village, often there are less miraculous works that God does. And they know they're not in charge of when God does those, right? So they pray and they ask God and he does mighty things, draws people to himself, and then he seems to, it's not that he stops doing miraculous works, it's just that they seem to be less frequent or less often. You know, the church may pray and God may say, no, because I want you to glorify me in suffering more than in deliverance from suffering. So I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to do a miraculous work here. I'm going, to sh- I'm going to allow my glory to be shown through suffering, right? So there's, there's, there's this remarkable pattern. So how does that play out? In our, as we go to talk to people about Jesus, what does that look like? Well, let me encourage you to do that one thing you could do. It's a, such a simple thing, but it's really profound. When you're interacting with your friends at work or in the neighborhood, and those in particular that don't know Jesus, and they're telling you, as they will, about a need in their life, guess what you can do right in that moment to invite God's power to come and move in their life? You can pray with them. Now, they might think that's weird, and they might think you're talking. You can even say, look, you might find this odd, but can I just pray with you right now about the thing that you just said? Now, I believe that God hears our prayers and, and wants to pour out his power into your life. And then pray. Let them hear what it sounds like when someone who knows God talks to God. That's a pretty cool conversation to listen in on, right? Let them hear it. Let them hear what it sounds like when you talk to God, when you talk to Jesus, and ask Jesus to do something miraculous in their life and then step back and watch him work. You don't make promises that he'll do any specific thing, but you pray by faith and you call on his power and you let them hear what that looks like and you say, Jesus, go to work. Because Jesus delights to draw people and to authenticate the message of the gospel with miraculous works of power. So invite him to do it. Call on him to do it. And when you do, they will not be able to make any other reason for why that happened other than my friend prayed over me who believes in God and God answered that prayer in a way that I cannot deny that he did it. That's a powerful way to begin to engage helping other people know Jesus. Last thing. It's a simple one too. Verses 10 through 16, after all the other things that he's instructed them to do, he says the last thing that you do if they don't, if they will not receive the messages is that you need to warn people in love. He says, I want you to wipe off even the dust of your feet against them. And then he gives this woe to these different towns and he's saying there, hey, this town, uh, he's actually pointing out that there were towns that were Jewish towns that had, had mighty works done in them and they didn't, they didn't respond to the message of the gospel. So that if these Gentile towns had heard it, Tyre and Sidon, if they'd heard it, they would have repented. But you didn't. And so he's warning them. Now, friends, all these other things are obviously what we do first, but it is appropriate. It is appropriate, in spite of what our cultural day and age tells us, it is appropriate to offer a word of warning for those who reject the message of Jesus. It needs to be done in love, with grace and mercy and hope that they might respond But friends, Jesus spent a lot of time, he spent a lot of time in the Gospels. I don't know if you read them, but he spends a lot of time talking about hell. Now, why would you spend a lot of time talking about hell if it wasn't real or didn't exist or no one was actually gonna go there? Why would you offer that warning? Unless there's a real danger. So friends, I want you to know, I want you to understand, I'm thinking in particular about my friends here who do not, have not given your life to Christ. This warning he gives here and the warning that we might give you today is a warning given in love. It's a warning given to say, you've been given an opportunity. A way has been made to be reconciled to the Father. Don't ask why I can't have another way. Why would you ask God 
who has made a way by sacrificing his son to give you another way. He's given you the most costly way he could have ever given you. It must have been the only one that he could have given. And so he did. He wants you to come home. We want you to come home. Be warned. Be warned. There's a cost with rejecting Jesus. There's a cost. It is separation from him eternally. It's a cost you will have chosen to take because you are hearing now the message of the gospel that Jesus crucified and resurrected and that through faith in him you can have eternal life. It's all you need is to come, receive the gift. But if you choose not to receive, there's eternal punishment waiting. And we need you to know that. And we wouldn't love you if we didn't tell you, if we hid that from you. What an act of selfishness on our part. So we warn you. We warn you. Friends, Jesus wants us to learn how to make more followers. It's as simple as that. These are things that he's instructed us and guided us in how to do so that we might grow in that. If I could encourage you, step into those conversations, step into those relationships, step into those moments knowing that you will not get it perfect. You will say something silly. You will mess something up. You will probably offend somebody at some point. You'll feel sheepish at some point. That's all gonna happen. Every time you will be further trained, every time you will grow, every time God will use it. 